Praise the Lord, for He is the great I Am. I want to talk today about no longer a slave to sin as we're trying to move through some rich text in Romans chapter 6. We've taken a pause on our Storing Through the Bible series to catch up on a few items in Romans as we've been teaching that through Wednesdays. So I want to pick up in chapter 6. I want to look at two verses of Scripture primarily that I think are going to be significant for us. Verse 15 and then verse 23 of chapter 6. Look what it says in the Scripture here. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And then the end of the chapter, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This verse 15 is significant for us. It identifies two places that we could be under. One is to be under law, and the other is to be under grace. There's a section of Scripture in Galatians chapter 4 that I think are significant for us. They help us to identify what this means when we say to be under grace versus under law. If you'll take your Bibles and look to Galatians chapter 4, keep your finger there in Romans 6, but Galatians 4 helps us to understand the significance of what it means to be under law or under grace. Look in chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Let me pause there to say, the phrase under the law is not as it is written in the original language. The article, the, has been added in the English. And it's because it just makes sense for us in English. But in the original language, Romans chapter 6, to say under law, is also uh, stated in this way, under law or under grace, without the article. It's significant in that uh, he wants us to zoom in on those two phrases, either under law or under grace. So he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now what's significant here is that to be under law is obviously a difficult place for us to be. Because it's Christ who has to redeem us, those who are under the law. Now, at our birth, every one of us is actually born under law, not under grace, under law. And what that means in the scope of the Scripture is that when we are under law, that means we place ourselves to be subservient to the law, that it reigns. And when we do that, what we're saying is that in order to have a relationship with God, to be declared righteous, we choose to put ourselves under law. Now, the reason why that's a difficulty for us that we need to be redeemed out of is because none of us can obey the law. You say, well, I can get most of them. Well, there's 613 of them in the Old Testament alone. Are you telling me that you're going to be able to do all 613? The Bible says, in fact, if you sin against one of them, you have sinned against all of them. You either place yourself totally under the law or you place yourself totally under grace. And what he is wanting to do is to push us to make a decision there. Let the distinction be. It's impossible for you to live under the law and do it rightly. So that's not the choice to be. And Christ redeems us out from that. Now there's the significance as well that Christ was born of woman under law. 
which means like us, Christ was born under the law. It was required of him, like it's required of all of us, to be perfect in the law. The difference is he did it. And in the end, God declared him righteous. That is, God said, in light of all my requirements, he, my son, is perfect. So he is the only one who can buy us out, to redeem us out from under law, and he does it by grace. Now, when you and I recognize that, there's nothing in our life that we can do to, to be saved in which we earn it. I'm not going to clean up my life enough. I'm not going to clean up my mouth enough, my mind enough, my actions enough. I can't do it to perfection. Then we say, how can I get out from under the law? Jesus is there to redeem us and places us under grace. Now, under grace is a total different picture. Under grace means that Christ, who is absolutely perfect in the law... He is righteous, actually gives us his righteousness. It's a gift that God gives to us. In fact, he says in Romans 5, 17, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we place ourselves under grace, under the rule of Christ Jesus. That is what it means to be saved. Being saved is not wanting to not go to hell and instead go to heaven. Being saved is not raise your hand if you don't want to go to hell and you'll repeat these words after me. Being saved is I do not believe I can ever be in relationship with God by acting righteously. I choose by God's grace to be redeemed, purchased out from under the law and be placed under God's grace and believe with all my being that Christ alone was the one who is perfect in the law and he gives me that perfection It's what theologians call the imputed righteousness. He gives that to me because I couldn't do it on my own. And for that, I surrender the rest of my life to be under his rule. That's what it means to be saved. Some of you have walked the aisles, repeated a prayer, and went through the waters, but you have never been saved. And so he's wanting us to recognize this. The evidence of our salvation is in our daily walk, by the way. If you're saved, you're going to walk and work out your salvation and what the Bible calls sanctification. Well, this is what chapter 6 is all about. We're no longer under the law, but under grace. And when that happens, not only does that solidify our salvation, but it solidifies our living for today. We receive the gift of salvation, yes, but that gift also moves us to walk differently from this day forward. In fact, if you zoom in in chapter 6 of Romans to verse 14, it talks about the essence of being under grace rather than being under law. He says, sin will have no dominion over you. In other words, sin will not have rule over your life since you are under grace. So you don't have to be ruled by sin. Why? Because you're under grace There's something about that that is eternal, and there's something about that for our living today. Being under grace means that God is for us and not against us. Now, who do you think is sin's greatest enemy? But the holy God of the universe. And since 
Sin's enemy is Almighty God. I can tell you that sin has been defeated and we are given that victory in Christ Jesus. That means that under grace, we are no longer under God's wrath and judgment. Under His grace, all of His energy that is extended towards us is love and mercy and grace and compassion and kindness. It's all of that. It's not wrath and judgment. That's what it means to live under grace. From this truth come some amazing challenges for us. Like don't go on living in sin because Christ, because you have died with Christ to sin. Or don't let sin rule, reign over your life because sin will have no dominion over you. What he's saying there is truth in this living under grace that you need to be able to appropriate by faith. Living under grace means that we have the power to live rightly because the righteous nature of Jesus lives in us. We're empowered by the sovereignty of God and by the Spirit of God. The power to live righteously is from God. And the choices that we make are based on God's truth about living righteously. We don't simply choose not to let sin be our master. We choose for God to be our master. And in that, He empowers us to live differently. Now, clearly, righteous living and being sanctified is part of the gift of God that is given to us and the power of the sovereignty of God in our lives. But listen, God will never impart that power and that sovereign move unless we are willful and submissive to Him. Every day as the mercies of God are renewed to us with the rising of the sun, and we begin to stir in the day, Our prayer immediately ought to be in, God, today I choose to live for you. I choose to be alive to Christ, to you in Christ. I choose to give myself to your glory for your purposefulness in the kingdom of God. I choose that all the members of my body would be presented to you gloriously. I choose that. I'm telling you, the moment you and I make those choices, a willful surrender to the sovereignty of God in our life, as Christ reigns over us, He infuses power in us that enables us to walk righteously. But you have a no-hands approach, and just let life rock on, go to work, go to the gym, Go to be entertained, rest when you get home, veg out on the couch, whatever it is. You take hands off of that, and the infused power of God is not prevailing. He does so in a surrendered state as He reigns over us, as grace is over us. Now, I hope that you'll hang out in Romans 6. Uh, We're moving out of it on Wednesday nights and moving out of it on Sunday mornings now. But boy, I hope you'll come back to this. I want you to listen to some of the truths that are just highlighted in this chapter about the victory that we have in Christ. For instance, look in verse 2. It says that we have died to sin and that we have been immersed into Christ. Verse 4 says that we walk thereby in newness of life. Verse 5 says that we will have a a resurrected body one day. That's where we're going. We know the line of what it means to live in Christ. We know where we're going to end up. We're no longer slaves to the body, verse 6 says. No longer slaves to sin. Our body has been brought to nothing. Verse 11 says we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. 
Verse 15 says that we are under grace. Verse 17 talks about the word being like a mold to us, God's word. A mold fabricated and we are the metal that is poured into it and when it solidifies it becomes part of the image of that mold. The word of God is meant to be that mold for us. We are poured into it, immersed into it and in doing so he makes us more and more like his son. And then verse 22 is significant that we choose to be slaves of God and thereby have the fruit of that sanctified or holy living in Christ Jesus. And 23, we're given a great gift of eternal life. Now 23 is where I really want to zoom in on. 23 is one of these verses that you might know by memory. And here it is. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus our Lord. Read that with me. You might have it memorized in another translation. But let's read it on the screens out loud together. Ready? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a powerful verse. If you haven't memorized it yet, I would encourage you to do so because God can use it in your life and in your discipleship of other people. But I want us to rethink this verse for a moment. This is one of those verses, if you're not careful, it becomes a standalone verse. In other words, we can quote it out of its context and really frame it to communicate something that in context it doesn't communicate. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the essence of that we would say as we're communicating that is that if you do sin, you're going to get what you got coming. And that's not what that verse is saying. That if you sin, you're going to earn a wage and the wage that you earn is death. And that's not what this verse in context is stating. In fact, what it's stating is something very different from that. Now let me just say that if you sin, the end result is going to be death. There are many verses that coincide with that truth. What is he saying in context and in structure by this sentence? Let's look at those two things. First by structure. I'm not a grammarian, but I have uh, diagrammed this sentence throughout the week and looked at it in multiple ways, both in the Koine Greek and in the English. And this is what I believe the verse is saying and how it would break apart in form. The word that begins the verse, for, as it's translated most often in our English translation, the word there is gar in the Greek language. It's a conjunction that can be translated for, that, indeed. It's meant to be a carrying on of an idea, a conjunction to begin a sentence. I think indeed is a great way for us to Put it on the screens. It would be that we would need a comma after that. Indeed, because it's a continuation of a thought. Indeed, the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life. All right, let's look at the subject, the verbs, the direct objects, indirect objects. Or let's, let's look at all this. Wages, obviously, is the subject. Wages of sin, and here's the action, is, and what is that? Death. Same thing, the gift of God is, the gift is eternal life. Who provides the gift? God. Who provides the wages? Sin. I think from that structure alone, 
we can understand that it's not about us earning the wages of sin. It's about the wages that sin pays. The wages that sin pays is death, but the gift that God gives is eternal life. Now that is somewhat different because what Paul is wanting us to recognize is that there is going to have to be a choice made. Who are you going to be a slave to? Are you going to be a slave to sin who pays wages of death? Or are you going to be a slave to God who gives gifts of which the culmination is eternal life? The context helps us to understand this as well. That in the context coming from verse 22 into verse 23, we can see the significance of that. Look at the context here. Verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For, indeed, the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in the context here, we see a person has two choices to make. One is to be a slave of sin, and the other is to be a slave of God. Sin pays a wage, and the wage that sin pays its slaves is death. But the gift that God gives is a free gift to those who serve Him, which is an eternal gift. It's an eternal life. Sin is not what you and I do to earn a wage. Sin is a master, and as a master, it pays you a wage, and that wage that it pays is death. For all people who serve sin, they get a payment from sin, and that payment is death. Just like in the same way, you don't earn a gift of eternal life. God gives you a gift of eternal life. And if you're going to choose to let sin be your master, you don't earn death. Sin pays death every single time. It's just the way it works out. So in the context, what he's wanting us to understand is there's a clear choice that has to be made. You're either going to serve sin or you are going to serve God. In terms of serve, Paul apologizes for using the illustration He says to be a servant is to be a slave. To be a slave means that you have chosen to be subservient or someone has chosen you to be subservient to a dominant influence. I think that's a good understanding of why Paul is using this term slave. That who are you choosing to be the dominant influence of your life? If it's sin, it's going to pay you a wage and that wage is death. And if the dominant influence of your life is God, He will give you a gift. It's eternal life. It makes sense that we would serve God because He's ultimately the only true one to serve. Everything else is illegitimate. Everything else is a counterfeit. God created all things. He makes all things. He causes things to be sustained. And in the end, all things will come back to Him. He's the only servant, the one to serve. He's the only master. Now, look at this next slide. I know this is probably elementary for some of you. Psalm 24 uh, talks about all things and all people belong to God. By the way, Psalm 24 is a go-to psalm. If you want to understand the doctrine of God, the sovereignty of God, that's one of those chapters. You just need to really concentrate on the 24th Psalm. Beautiful. Look what he says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. All things and all people belong to God. Now hold that argument. Let's build a little further in this thing. And you'll see not only does God 
have all things and all things belong to him and all people belong to him, but God has no needs. In Acts chapter 17, it says, The Lord of heaven and earth is not served by human hands and as though he has need of anything. Another argument is that God needs no work from us. Job has an amazing testimony about this. He says to, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurement? Who stretched out the line upon it? Who laid the cornerstone, Job? You think I need you to do any of that? I'm the one who was there from the beginning. So in the end, since God owns all things, God needs no thing, and God needs our help with anything, we need to recognize He owes us no wages. And when you think about somebody owing you a wage, that means they're indebted to you. Let's say you cut lawns, and I invite you to my house, and I say, for 40 bucks, if you'll cut my yard, I'll give you 40 bucks. That means the whole time you're cutting my yard, you have in mind that I have made a promise and I'm indebted to you. Once the yard is complete, the work has been done, the exhaustion is yours. Now I owe you 40 bucks. Listen, for the one who made all things, owns all things, needs no things, he owes us nothing. He doesn't owe us a wage. He's not indebted to us in any way. What he does is give gifts. It's just the beauty of God and His grace and mercy. He gives gifts. Now Satan, on the other hand, poses sin as a gift. Satan, who is a counterfeit, as a master, will offer to you gains. If you'll just give a portion of your life, he will give you a gain, he says. It's a pleasure. It's a gain. But in the end, it's not a gain at all, is it? It culminates with death. Sin promises freedom, and you might say, man, I'm free to do what I want to do anytime I want to do it. But no, my friends, that's not freedom. That's called enslavery to your desires and the evil desires of this world and the sin of this world. It doesn't feel like we're earning a wage of death while we're doing it. That's the strategy of the enemy. It feels like we're walking freedom with experiences of freedom. We get to do what we want and have the pleasure of doing it. But in the end, it comes to death. There's a big cost of sin. You think about every job has a burden to it and every job has a toil to it. And in exchange for the burden or the toil, they are going to pay you. You're going to earn a wage. When I was a kid, one of the ways that I earned some money beyond working at jobs was that I would bale hay and get it up in the barn for different people. It's that season uh, right now. So, How many of you ever been in that job? Yeah, lots of you. Some of you still there. You know, the, the job is pretty simple. The instructions are simple. It's Randy, you walk beside the truck or the trailer and when you come across a hay bale, you pick it up and you load it onto the truck and it's stacked. Not a big deal, <laughs> unless you're a buck and a quarter like I was, and you have to pick that thing up, and it gets way over your head. You have to learn the ingenuity of kicking it with your knee and getting that momentum and getting it up there stacked. And all the while, you're fighting the fire ants and the snakes and other critters that might 
be under there and the briars that would grab a hold of and the heat and the sweating and the caking of the dirt and the exhaustion and the weariness and soreness of your muscles. But you do all of that. When I was a kid, you'd do all of that. You'd trade that portion of your life for four bucks an hour. And you're happy to do it. There's an exchange there. There's a cost. On my part, the cost was physical and it was just living without pain. I exchanged that part of myself for four bucks an hour. Every job is that. Every job is you giving a portion of yourself, your intellect, your emotion, your physical strength, your time, your energy, in exchange for a wage in return. What we don't often calculate is the cost, the wage of sin. As a master, sin lies to people. It promises a wage of pleasure and gain, but it delivers the opposite. People are often willing to give a portion of themselves in exchange for the promised wage, but they end up paying a pretty exorbitant price in their life or their marriage or their job or their money or their dignity or their respect or their reputation or their testimony because of sin. They believe that they will be rewarded with the pleasure and gain that is promised to them. But in the end, when payday comes, and payday always comes, when payday comes, it's paid in denominations of death. I've witnessed sin's payday for many people in my ministry, people who have served sin as their master. They believe the lie that it's just sex. It's just physical. It's just sex. It's no big deal. But on payday, the marriage crumbles and children are lost and jobs are in jeopardy and their reputation is ruined and their character is assassinated and on and on and on. Death marches through their life while the master sin laughs in a hideous way that another one fell for the lies. There's not just that payday of death in one's life when they choose to serve sin as their master. There's an accumulative effect as well. Whereas sin claims to be the master, the ultimate master is God. He alone is sovereign. He alone chooses life and death. And in the end, it's not the enemy that is going to pay the wage of death. In the end, the accumulative effect is that God will. That all of us will face Him. And in an illustrative way, He says, Those who are under grace are unto life, and those who are under law or under sin unto death. And that's not a perpetual physical death that he's talking about there. He's talking about an eternal separation from himself, his beauty, his love, and everything that is good. A complete removal of all that, the influence of grace and mercy completely gone. It's life lived in misery of a tormented place called hell. That's death as it's described in the scripture. In fact, in the end, this payday that we're talking about is spoken by Paul in Romans chapter 2. Look at this verse that's coming on the the screen here. Romans 2, verse 6 through 8. He will render to each one according to his works. 
to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Death is exactly what is deserved. It's the wage that's being paid out for those who are obedient to sin's beck and call. So what Paul is doing is he is trying to get us to recognize the distinction of the two masters and trying to get us to recognize the cost of the two. The sin, you are paid a wage of death, but God, who owes us nothing, pays no wage, gives a gift. It's eternal life. He's wanting us to make a choice. Whereas eternal death equals the separation that one would have from God and His love, His beauty, His gifts, eternal life means that those servants of His will will live in the fullness of God and have His glorious promises forever. Now the the Romans 6 passage says that God gives a gift which is eternal life. But Ephesians says that gift of eternal life opens up to the riches of enormity of gifts over and over and over. In fact, look at this. He will raise us up with Him and seat us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages... Now wait, this is speaking about eternity. In the eternal ages of eternity, that is on and on and on, throughout the ages of eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is that? But it is a gift and a gift and a gift. And when you think, oh God, surely you have no more gifts. No, you're just getting them started. God is going to give you out of the riches of himself, gift after gift after gift. And it brings a discovery about who God is and the glory of God and the love of God, the affection of God, so that it would take all eternity to give all those gifts. And they would never run out. So when you're making a decision about sin, the temptation is there. And it's calling for you to be his slave. You need to push the pause button. If I choose sin as my master, he will pay the wage of death. If I choose righteousness, God is my master. He will give gifts. Gift of eternal life and perpetual, unending gifts of his riches. Just pause enough to think of that in a nanosecond it takes to have that calculated thought between the distinction of those two. And if you will do that, you'll probably not move in the direction of sin and you probably will move in the place of righteousness. Somebody stopped me after the second service and said, Randy, you need to share with them what you shared on Wednesday night, which is just in the moment of temptation, if you pause enough to say, I don't have to do that. I'm free from that. I'm not in that domain. Sin doesn't rule over me anymore. I've died to that. I'm free from that. I don't have to do that. He said, for me, that's often enough. He's been practicing that. A couple of weeks ago, I had another gentleman come to me. He said, listen, when you said that you often speak out loud, I don't have to do that. He said, I started practicing that. And since last week, I've done it six times. And every time, I walked in righteousness. Something powerful about that. Just recognizing the truths that God has given and appropriate them by faith. 
choosing to serve righteousness. When you and I are submissive to God, He will infuse into us amazing power from His sovereignty. Let's draw it to a conclusion today. There's two different groups in the room today. One are those who need salvation and the others of us who have salvation in Christ. I want you to recognize if you're here today and the Spirit of God has drawn you to this place because you thought being saved was raising your hand, saying a prayer, being baptized. You failed to recognize that you never moved out from under the law and under grace. You failed to recognize that Christ alone, by grace, could give you righteousness and remove all sin. And for that, you choose to live under His rule and reign. And that's salvation. If today you're brought here because of that truth, today's the day of emancipation. Today's the day for you to be set free from sin and slavery to death and sin and the grave. Today's the day of freedom for you. And Jesus, the emancipator, is here to offer to you this gift of grace. Choose it. Choose it. And for the majority of us, we've been introduced to that idea. We know it from the scriptures, by the inspiration of the Spirit. And we have made that move. We are now under grace. And our job from this day forward in grace is to walk a holy walk. Not because we have to, but because for the first time in our life, we can. For the first time of our life, we want to serve God as the master. We choose to be a slave to Him, subservient to His dominant influence. Now look at two verses and we'll close. First is salvation. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8 of chapter 5, God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you do know the devil is okay with you trying to get your life straightened out. If you're going to come to Christ, you better get things straight. If you're going to come to a relationship with God and His holiness, you better change the way you talk, change the way you do things, change, change where you go, who you hang out with. you got to get some things in order. The enemy is okay with that. Because you remain under law there. What he does not want you to do is to come out from under the law and say, I can't. I can't change. It's my nature. It's like sin is dominating me. I'm in its domain. It rules over me. I can't change. I've tried and tried and tried. I can't do it. When you come to that conclusion and you get God's Glorious mercy and grace. And he takes you out of that kingdom of darkness and he ushers you into a kingdom of light where grace is sovereign. And you willfully choose to let your life be under grace. Oh man, what a difference. Listen to what Paul says there. While you were weak, when you couldn't change, Christ died. That's the aha moment for eternal life. Look at the next verse and we'll close. Are you to continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, may it not be. 
Hey, you don't get a blank check just to live the way you want now that Christ has rescued you from your sin. That's not the person who has life in Christ. The person who has life in Christ is evident not just in their faith, but in their sanctified walk. That is, in their holy ways. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're going to be far from that. Paul struggled with that, and the seventh chapter of Romans is all about that. But your intent is different. Your slavery to righteousness is what makes the difference there. Are you to continue to sin that grace may abound? Look what he says in verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because you ain't going to get this if I don't. I'm going to give you an illustration so that you'll understand it, he's saying. Because of your natural limitations, you need this. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to a holy life, sanctification. For the rest of us who have been saved, we're under grace. The evidence is our choice to live a holy life. I don't have to live like I used to live. I don't have to have impurity and lawlessness. If I choose that, it will only lead to more lawlessness. I can choose righteousness. And the moment you and I do that, sovereign power of God moves. And He makes it so that our members can become instruments of righteousness. Life is different. So which one of those two are you in? The need of salvation or to press on in your sanctification? Choose your masters. Choose them wisely because today's choices have eternal consequences, positive or negative. Pray with